the courage of the shut mouth, in spite of artillery. The line pink and quiet, a worm basking. There are black discs behind it, the discs of outrage, and the outrage of a sky, the lined brain of it. The discs revolve, they ask to be heard. Loaded as they are with accounts of bastardies, bastardies, usages, desertions and doubleness, the needle journeying in its groove, silver beast between two dark canyons, a great surgeon, now a tattooist, tattooing over and over the same blue grievances, the snakes, the babies, the tits on mermaids and two-legged dream girls. The surgeon is quiet, he does not speak, he has seen too much death, his hands are full of it. So the discs of the brain revolve, like the muzzles of cannon. Then there is that antique billhook, the tongue, indefatigable, purple, must it be cut out. It has nine tails, it is dangerous and the noise it flays from the air once it gets going. No, the tongue too has been put by, hung up in the library with the engravings of Rangoon, and the fox heads, the otter heads, the heads of dead rabbits. It is a marvelous object, the things it has pierced in its time. But how about the eyes? The eyes, the eyes. Mirrors can kill and talk. They are terrible rooms in which a torture goes on one can only watch. The face that lived in this mirror is the face of a dead man. Do not worry about the eyes. They may be white and shy. They are no stool pigeons. Their death rays folded like flags of a country no longer heard of, an obstinate independency, insolvent among the mountains. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each episode I choose a poem and show you what makes it tick. This episode's poem is The Courage of Shutting Up by Sylvia Plath. I'd like to issue a quick warning at the top of the episode. This poem and the discussion around it deals with the topic of suicide and domestic abuse. If you'd prefer to avoid that, you might enjoy one of the older episodes of the podcast. With that being said, let's continue. It's hard to find a figure so mythically tragic as Sylvia Plath in all of Western poetry. In fact, it would not be unfair to say that her death and the circumstances surrounding it often dwarf the skill and mastery underlying her poetry. It has become incredibly fashionable to think of her as some kind of grimly elegant titan of poetry, a vision of her that was popularized with the posthumous publishing of Ariel, the collection from which this poem is taken. This publishing happened in 1965, two years after Plath took her own life. It contains a foreword by poet Robert Lowell, someone greatly admired by Plath. 
in his introduction are the seeds of this myth-making around her death. He creates an almost godlike depiction of her as he writes about her work. Here is an excerpt. In these poems written in the last months of her life and often rushed out at the rate of two or three a day, Sylvia Plath becomes herself, becomes something imaginary, newly, wildly and subtly created. It is a bold statement to say that she is becoming something imaginary, newly, wildly and subtly created in these works. His choice of words alone are hinting at this created element, a fiction of sorts. In actual fact, he marks the collection out as some kind of catharsis, a transformative object. In actual fact, it is very difficult to know the truth of that 1965 edition of Ariel, as it was her husband, Ted Hughes, who arranged the edition after her death. Plath herself had a fully completed manuscript ready to go to publishing before she died. In assuming control of the editing, Ted Hughes actually made some huge alterations. In the first place, he omitted a number of poems that he felt were too filled with vitriol, and, as many have said, often painted him in a rather poor light. These poems, this episode's one among them, were left out, and in doing so, went directly against Plath's wishes. He added others in that were incomplete and altered the order of the poems as well. In changing Plath's intended order, Hughes created an artificial sequence to the material, making it seem much more a collection that spiraled from the joy of motherhood to the absurdity of existence and finally culminating in a woman obsessed with death. When we read the pages of Ariel from the 1965 edition, we are struck by its morbidity as the collection draws to a close. In actuality though, Plath wanted the book to end on the much more hopeful B sequence. This manipulation of the order of her work painted a false but powerful portrait of a woman obsessed with death who was dogged by depression and mania at every turn. This altered depiction of her is one recognized around the world by fans of her work, myself included. Initially, when attempting to write this episode, I wanted to focus on The Hanging Man, only to find out that it was one of those included by Hughes. I felt that doing an episode on Sylvia Plath on a poem that she did not want included was in poor taste. With that in mind, I set about reading the restored edition of Ariel, published in 2007 one that restored Plath's original layout, and one that also possessed an introduction by the couple's daughter, Frida Hughes. The introduction that Frida Plath supplies for her mother's work is one of wonderful clarification. There are so many theories on the final days of Sylvia Plath, and many more on her relationship to Ted Hughes. Myth-making surrounds the pair, speculation and hearsay abound. But, the words from her daughter humanize both. Here is an excerpt from that introduction. It appeared to me that my father's editing of Ariel was seen to interfere with the sanctity of my mother's suicide. As if, like some deity, everything associated with her must be enshrined and preserved as miraculous. For me, as her daughter, 
everything associated with her was miraculous. But that was because my father made it appear so, even playing me a record of my mother reading her poetry so I could hear her voice again. There is a very human side to the marriage put across by their daughter, and one that looks beyond the bitterness and cruelty that was said to have been part of the pair's marriage. With all that being said, we cannot deny that the final year of Platt's marriage to Hughes was a tense one. In 1962, Ted Hughes had been carrying on an affair, and Platt had found out and decided that it was high time to end the marriage. This decision was a moment of supreme agency on Platt's part, and could be looked upon as the poet finding her voice after many, many years of verbal and physical abuse. In light of this information, I thought that The Courage of Shutting Up was the perfect poem to depict this. There are two parties in the poem. I will refer to them as the speaker and the opponent. In this particular case, I think it is fair to say that the speaker is Plath and the opponent is Hughes, respectively. And I will refer to them in that way from now on. In sharp contrast to its title, The Courage of Shutting Up is actually all about asserting strength in the face of belittlement and abuse. From the first stanza, we can see just what an act of defiance this shutting up really is. The courage of the shut mouth in spite of artillery. The line pink and quiet. A worm basking. There are black discs behind it. The discs of outrage. And the outrage of a sky. The lined brain of it. The discs revolve. They ask to be heard. Straight away, Platt's talent for blazing imagery is made crystal clear. The reader is met with a barrage of strong imagery, one after the other, mimicking the artillery mentioned in that first line. That word, artillery, hints at the level of verbal abuse currently being experienced by Platt, in the face of which she does not falter. We can picture the clenched jaw and cold thin line of her mouth, which is compared to a worm basking. There is a strange dichotomy taking place in this image of the worm. In one sense it could be interpreted as something pathetic, impotent in the face of harassment. Yet in another sense there is a quiet detachment and defiance in the word basking. These lips are unflinching and unfazed. This has all happened before, and Plath is unflappable now. Following that, one of the central images of the poem is introduced, the black discs of outrage, so similar to a void or abyss. They are an ominous symbol of all the repressed rage and fury Plath feels. Plath's imagery becomes mercurial here, as one thing bleeds into another. The outrage becomes a sky brimming with tension, the clouds of which become reminiscent of the brain in turn. Throughout the stanza, we are presented with a kind of X-ray of the head of Plath. The discs revolve, grinding like the cogs of thought. The final words heighten the sense of looming doom that is taking place in the poem. They ask to be heard. This rage will be denied no longer. 
In the second stanza, Platt's imagery begins to weave together, layering itself upon itself, loaded as they are with accounts of bastardies. Bastardies, usages, desertions, and doubleness. The needle journeying in its groove. Silver beast between two dark canyons. A great surgeon, now a tattooist. It leads directly on from the first stanza. The disc taking on the military aspect of artillery from the first stanza. With the line, loaded as they are, with accounts of bastardies. We can assume this to be all the unsaid knowledge of Ted Hughes' misdeeds. Plath was keenly aware of such things and keeps them now like ammunition. Plath expands on them, fleshes them out so that the reader can truly understand the length and breadth of the hurt caused. Usages, desertions and doubleness. The discs shift in meaning once more, becoming vinyl records once again asking to be heard in a much more musical sense this time, as the needle of the player gives them voice. The danger of that repression in these unheard sounds is made clear in the transformation of the needle into a silver beast, and the two canyons create a brooding atmosphere for the rest of the poem. The needle takes on the precision of a surgeon, inflicting damage to bring about healing. Then the repetition returns in the tattoo needle. It is reminiscent of the artillery. That tattooing bleeds directly into the next stanza. Tattooing over and over the same blue grievances. The snakes, the babies, the tits on mermaids, and two-legged dream girls. The surgeon is quiet. He does not speak. He has seen too much death. His hands are full of it. The blue grievances could be a reference to Plath's veins. As Plath was fascinated by the intricacies of the human body, particularly her own. A host of grievances are listed by the opponent, each one pricking at an insecurity. The tattooing over seems to indicate that Plath never gets the chance to return fire, to respond. There are the snakes and the babies, temptations and motherhood, often referenced in Ariel. Then the tits on mermaids and two-legged dream girls become a symbol of Platt's jealousies of other women who occupy Hugh's attention, another major theme of Ariel as a collection. The surgeon seems to become a stand-in for Ted Hughes, the quiet, calculating man that can cut her to the quick. For many years, Plapp suffered both physical and mental abuse at the hands of Hughes, but this was only revealed in a series of previously unpublished letters in 2017. The figure of the surgeon then is quiet, and we are left unsure as to whether Plapp has finally responded, shaming them into silence. Or is the figure referencing herself as the surgeon? calm and collected in the face of the barrage? Does she know full well that any attempt to rebuke or respond will not be tolerated by the opponent? After all, he has seen too much death, his hands are full of it. Either Hughes has inflicted too much damage, or Plath has suffered too much to push the issue. 
The latter seems the much more logical reading, as moving into the fourth stanza, Plath reasserts her quiet stoicism. So the discs of the brain revolve like the muzzles of cannon. Then there is that antique billhook, the tongue, indefatigable, purple. Must it be cut out? It has nine tails. It is dangerous, and the noise it flays from the air once it gets going. The imagery of war returns as Platt's brain whirs, the discs taking on the destructive force of cannons searching for a target. More weapons are introduced. Gone are the delicate instruments of scalpels and needles. The tongue is now a billhook, an ancient tool for felling trees and often used in war. The billhook is a blunt tool meant for destruction and so is fitting for what is occurring. The billhook is the tongue and it is relentless. So much so that Plath considers the most drastic of actions, simply cutting it out. Then from blunt pain to searing sharp with the cat of nine tails whip, ensuring that the reader knows how much even the air suffers under this assault. At the end of this stanza, there can be no mistaking the damage being done and just how much willpower is required to stay silent through it all. In the fifth stanza, there is a sudden shift in tone and setting. No, the tongue too has been put by, hung up in the library with the engravings of Rangoon, and the fox heads, the otter heads, the heads of dead rabbits. It is a marvellous object, the things it has pierced in its time. We are transported to a Victorian trophy room, a staple of colonial masculinity. Here, the tongue, that weapon Plath has often, that weapon Plath has felt so often, has been retired, situated in pride of place. It is surrounded by the fox heads, the otter heads, the heads of dead rabbits, trophies of the things that have fallen before it. Perhaps Plath feels herself among these trophies. This trophy room imagery is typically colonial and British. This idea is only reinforced by the mention of Rangoon, a former British colony. It is probably not a coincidence as Hughes himself was British and so there is a definite allusion to him in this mentioning. There is a sour note as Plath sarcastically declares, it is a marvelous object. This statement clearly stands very much at odds with the rest of the poem. It echoes the kind of bizarre admiration that is often expressed towards particularly dangerous weapons, a kind of manic respect for something that can cause so much damage. The notion of the tongue having been put aside has answered the question from the previous stanza. Must it be cut out? So, has the opponent learned new ways to harm the speaker? Or, in a much grimmer fashion, are hurting words not enough for them anymore. The anatomy of the poem shifts as we move into the sixth verse. But how about the eyes, the eyes, the eyes? Mirrors can kill and talk. They are terrible rooms 
in which a torture goes on one can only watch. The face that lived in the mirror is the face of a dead man. Do not worry about the eyes. The tongue is left behind and a focus on the eyes begins. They are the focus as it is repeated three times. We move away from the hidden violence of words to the overt violence of the visual. Those eyes become mirrors through which Plath must observe her own abuse. The way in which they can kill and talk is a reference to how we can sometimes communicate through eye contact alone. When they kill, we observe betrayal in the eyes of those we love. When they talk, they showcase our own inner worlds. They are terrible rooms and we get the sense that Plath sees her own reflection in the eyes of her abuser. This is the most psychologically harrowing of the stanzas. Plath goes on to state that the face that lived in this mirror is a dead man. That mirror, this mirror, are Plath's own eyes. This is a possible allusion to the fact that the man in this poem is someone Plath no longer recognizes. He is changed so completely. The memory of that kinder man is dead now and Plath compels herself to move on and not worry about the eyes. She seems worried about how much her own eyes give away, but the final stanza makes it clear that there is no cause for alarm. They may be white and shy, they are no stool pigeons. Their death rays folded like flags of a country no longer heard of, an obstinate independency, insolvent among the mountains. That line, they are no stool pigeons, shows us that they will show no fear now. It compounds the notion of courage found in the title of this poem. Plath has found bravery in her passivity, in her stoic refusal to engage. This is driven home as she begins to compare herself to a foreign state, a barely recognized thing. For me, it is comparing this older Plath to her younger self. She is a far cry from the young, furious woman she once was. Where once she might have stared at Hughes with utter malice and fury, now she has neither the energy nor the want to engage him. Their death rays folded like flags. That younger self and all its confrontational energy, its aggressive hatred, is a faded thing. So much so, that it is a country no longer heard of. There are two ways of interpreting the ending lines. The first way is a kind of act of mourning on Platt's part, for the energetic fierce woman that used to combat Hughes, a woman who has been worn away by constant abuse over the years. This reading, however, strips all agency from Platt, and so I don't think it fits. In keeping with the title of The Courage of Shutting Up, I believe that Plath has found a way to engage with her abuser. That is to say, not engaging with him at all. A refusal to fuel his own rage by responding. A denial of satisfaction for any sadistic impulse he may possess. As the poem draws to its close, the reason that Hughes chose to exclude it becomes clear. It paints him in a hideous light, 
and shows just how much Sylvia Plath had outgrown him. So, why this poem? This poem went through multiple versions before Plath settled on the one we read now, particularly the title. In its first four incarnations, the title was The Courage of Quietness, a much more conservative title. Had she stuck with this title, it would have been very reminiscent of Plath's earlier works, those that we read in The Colossus, where, quite often, a much more conservative, timid and careful speaker was utilised. Always there was a cautious voice used to explore the things that preoccupied her. In Ariel, though, she truly lives up to the namesake of the collection. From Shakespeare, Ariel was the great spirit freed from a tree in the tempest after long imprisonment. The speaker of all the poems within this collection is a powerful one, filled with the fury and energy of repressed rage. They are fearless and abrasive and make no apology as they cover the wide range of topics found within, from motherhood femininity to jealousy to rage. This poem is the grasping of agency personified. The Courage of Shutting Up is a combative title, and its content is damning. It shows Platt's prowess as a poet without reducing her to a death-obsessed tragic waif. It is a poem that truly does justice to her work and identity, and honours the spirit of a human who found their voice and, even if only for a short while, lived unafraid. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, and so very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch with me through my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com There you will also find show notes for this episode complete with references. You can also find those show notes on Substack which is linked below in the description. If none of that suits you I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast. There you'll find helpful study guides and bonus content as well as what I'm reading during the week in case that interests you in any way. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Scott Buckley and is used under Creative Commons license. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving me a review on whatever platform you listen on. Better yet, send this to a friend who you think might enjoy it. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to me, and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.